Exodus chapter 23, and uh, verses 27 through 33. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come, and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And I pray as we dig into it, as we analyze it, that uh, you would analyze our hearts, that you would expose our hearts, that you would help us to respond to you with worship, with praise, with full-hearted commitment, And Father, that you would encourage this, your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, Kathy and I attended an amazing think tank kind of a conference in Escondido, uh, California. And you can listen to at least some of those uh, lectures online. I think maybe all of them may be up this year. Uh, Very, very well researched. I don't think there was a dud sermon uh, or lecture in the entire conference. And I especially like Joe Boots' uh, lecture. He's a guy from up in Toronto, Canada. And it was just amazing, the analysis that he gave. And actually, one of the reasons that we go there uh, is uh, for networking. Uh, There's a number of reasons, but uh, we were able to network with some phenomenal organizations that I think will have some synergy of uh, efforts together on. So anyway, thank you for your prayers. Uh, I think it was uh, definitely a worthwhile trip. But anyway, these uh, researchers were showing that things are much worse in America than I had even uh, guessed that they were. The invasion of the occult is everywhere. Now, the stated purpose of the GLBT community to kind of drive us into the closet uh, is a lot closer to fruition than I had uh, thought it was. Uh, There are a lot of government officials who are just itching to push this agenda upon us. The imposition of oneism into the schools is moving at a rapid pace. Uh, The agendas of D.C. and state capitals and United Nations and Uh, Planned Parenthood and uh, National Education Association, American Psychological Association, environmental uh, uh, various organizations, Uh, they are becoming more and more clear, Uh, they're becoming more and more well-known and far more powerful. And at the end of day one, a lot of the attendees were just extremely discouraged. I mean, you could literally see some of their heads hanging down and thinking, woe is me. I wasn't uh, too discouraged because I was interpreting this within our uh, Reconstructionist framework. Uh, But uh, at least some of these presenters reminded me very much of the 10 spies who brought a perfectly accurate report of what was uh, in the land of Canaan, but they brought it in a way that made the Israelites say, why in the world would we go in there? I mean, they're just taking the wind out of the sails of the people. Discouragement uh, can do that to us. It can take the wind 
uh, out of our sails. And so I came away from that conference feeling greatly resourced with the incredible research on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, very much concerned that if people listened to this information without the faith of a Joshua or a Caleb, uh, it could undo them. It could just make them want to uh, totally give up because things are indeed uh, pretty bad. But um, it reminded me in the process that I think what the church needs is not more information about how bad things are out there, but they need a worldview and they need the promises of God to give them the faith of a Joshua, of a Caleb, uh, to be able to say, hey, we can take on the giants of this land. Uh, we are fully able to take on the giants uh, that face our individual family. Some of you are going through some pretty discouraging times, and I wanted to bring a word of encouragement to you and uh, even some strategies on how we can take on the giants that we are, are, are facing. And so what I wanted to do, I, I couldn't think of a better passage. I've preached on this passage before, actually, but I've done a total rework, a total rewrite of this. Uh, and, and I want to look at the seven... Um, observations, accurate observations of the spies that went into the land of Canaan that totally took the wind out of the sails of people. And then I want to look at God's seven encouraging responses to that. Now the first discouraging observation that the spies made was that the enemy seemed invincible. Uh, the task of Israel seemed impossible. They were supposed to go in and conquer the land of Canaan, to subdue the giants, uh, to build cities. They were to resist and to overcome all of the humanism that was so pervasive in that uh, uh, country of Canaan. They were supposed to burn down all of the pornographic library cities of Canaan. They were to replace it with a Christian civilization. It was a huge task that they had been called to. And in effect, it is the same commandment that the Apostle Paul gave to us when he said, that we are to tear down strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity and into obedience uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the problem with the first generation of Israelites was that they had not been adequately trained in warfare. They didn't have horses and chariots or equipment to besiege the cities. And I want to read from Numbers the first observation of the spies. They said, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And boy, I heard a lot of that this past week, uh, how strong the enemy is. And there's nothing wrong with that observation that they made. It's true. The people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. That's true. We are not able to go up against the people. Well, there's not entirely true, but there was something in there. Uh, for they are stronger than we. That's true. There we saw the giants, that's true, and we are grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. And that's where they were making a mistake. They were looking at these facts through human eyes. Now, they were making correct observations through their human eyes, but God wanted them to look at those facts through the perspective and vision of His promises and of His power. Take a look at Exodus 23 at verse 27. This is God's first response. God says, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. 
When you bring God into the equation, something remarkable happens. God's people are able to do uh, the impossible. In fact, uh, something very weird happened. The people of Canaan had the same perspective of the invincibility of God's people that God's people had of the invincibility of the Canaanites. When you put the statements side by side, it looks really weird. Uh, They both are scared of each other, okay? And uh, I want to read you uh, the observation of what one of the Canaanites was feeling. It's the testimony of Rahab, but she says this is really what all of the Canaanites were feeling. She said, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, etc., etc. You've heard the expression, one person with God is a majority. Actually, the one person's irrelevant. (laughs) God's a majority, right? But there is a seed of truth in that statement, and that is this, that we don't need to worry about our minority status if God is with us and if we are with God, and Satan knows this. And so let me begin by outlining from this verse three reasons why humanism is self-defeating and why we really ought to be encouraged. Uh, The first reason was that they were not psychologically able to handle Israel. God made sure they did not have the psychological grounding uh, to be able to have long-term victory. Now, evangelicals, unfortunately, don't have it either, but uh, we'll look at that a little bit later. But let's look at the humanists. God says, I will send my fear before you. Now, it's true that humanism can be very cocky, very self-assured when there is no vibrant Christianity to stand up against it. But when you've got the, the, the full-orb faith of an Abel, a Cain begins to feel a threat. When you've got the wisdom of a Daniel uh, before the leaders of Babylon, they feel threatened. They want to get him thrown uh, to the lions. And you might wonder, why in the world... Would they have felt that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, all these guys were a threat? I mean, they're just a tiny minority in Israel. Why in the world would they be fearful of them? But you know, those humanists way back then, they knew something about God's people that evangelicals are oblivious to today. Uh, They are uh, totally oblivious. And we're going to be looking at, at the power of God in transforming an entire nation, a society, and they were doing it in Persia. They were taking over Persia despite the fact they were a minority. And this inability to psychologically cope with the threat of a vibrant Christianity has been true all down through history. You see it in the books by Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and they all say the same thing. You read their books. They say Christianity is a threat. Why? Why do they think that? They think of you. You might not think of yourself as a threat, but you are, okay? Just believe me. You're a threat, a horrible threat, even though you're a tiny, uh, feeling very weak uh, people. When Saul thought the integrity and consistent Christianity of David, he felt threatened. We looked at that before. Uh, Several hundred years later, when Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, saw the bold advancement of the New Testament church, he felt unbelievably threatened and he did everything he could to destroy the church. Why? I mean, these Christians were so nice. They're so kind. They're so peaceful, right? 
Why would Saul feel threatened? And I believe in each case it was a situation of the demons that were driving these people. These demons know. They know exactly what's going on. These demons know that it doesn't matter how much the Christians protested that we are loyal citizens. We're not revolutionaries. And they weren't. They were loyal citizens. It didn't matter because of the demons that were driving uh, these Roman officials they felt intuitively that there was something of a threat uh, amongst the Christians. And Revelation chapter 12 takes us behind the scenes of what's going on. And it says, really, what's going behind the persecution of Rome against the Christians is that Satan and his demons are driving those people. And you see the same thing in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 where it's Smyrna. Now, local officials are throwing these people into jail, but he says, hey, it's Satan throwing you into jail. And so because of these demons behind those local magistrates, there's almost a, an intuitive understanding that Christianity is in bold competition with them. They recognize that Christ called for total conquest. He, he claimed all authority in heaven and on earth. He demanded total uh, submission from citizens and kings alike, and they felt threatened. They did not have the confidence to compete in a free market. Now, other religious positions have always opted for monopolies or trying to force their opinions upon people using uh, government, uh, a government power. It's true of the messianic school system in America, of environmentalism, the, the LGBT movement, uh, any of the other messed up ideologies that are being imposed upon us, they inevitably have to use government to force the competition out. And that's one of the things that kind of blew me away at this uh, conference, the realization that with all of this research that was coming in of how this, uh, this government force or power is coalescing behind these gross oneist ideologies that hate the creator-creature distinction so much. I mean, think about it. Why is the National Education Association scared to death of the homeschoolers in the Christian schools? Okay, we're no threat, are we? We're a tiny minority. Why do they want to force all citizens to join a government school? Why can't they compete like everybody else has to? Why are they so desperate to get the state to impose a universal curriculum on everyone? And I believe it's because they know they cannot compete in a free market. Think about it this way. Do you think government schools could compete if they made parents write a check for the full costs of their children's tuition at the beginning of every school year. No way. Guarantee you, no way. They wouldn't do that. In fact, I would encourage you to start asking your friends, your Christian uh, friends, uh, that question. Uh, ask them, you know, if, if, if uh, there was no such thing as, quote-unquote, free education, which would you pick? Uh, government education, private schools, or homeschooling. You have your pick of, of all the three of those, and you need to consider the uh, student-teacher ratio, the, um, the, the, the cost, and uh, the, the quality of the education. Let me just give you a clue in terms of cost. Uh, back in 2010, I was digging around yesterday for more recent statistics, but anyway, in 2010... In Nebraska, the cost, the average cost per pupil was 
uh, dollars. Actually, some of the school districts were as high as 27,000, so the really smaller districts. But let's take the lower rounded figure, $11,000. Contrast that with the average cost of all private schools in Nebraska, including the, the most expensive ones, $6,600, that's 4,500 less. And then contrast that with the cost of homeschooling, uh, 600 bucks uh, on average in Nebraska. So that's your choice, you tell them. Which are you gonna choose? $11,000 for government school. For me, that would, be, that would have been about $55,000 a year. Dykstra is, what, $99,000 a year? Okay, <laughs> Okay. so you got that, that $11,000. You got $6,600 for the government schools. You got $600 for the uh, homeschooling. I can almost guarantee you that 99.9% .9 of Christians would stop sending their kids as missionaries <laughs> into the government schools because there's no way that $11,000 is buying the kind of quality education you would expect $11,000 uh, to buy. And here's the point. If all schools had to compete on an even playing field in a free market, the government schools would shut down overnight guaranteed. They could not survive. There's no way they could compete. Just on the economics alone, let alone the quality and the other things. They could not compete. And the National Teachers Union knows it. And this is why they are desperate to shut down all competition using government force. It's one form of fear. They fear us. Now, what about other countries? On Wednesday, I read a, a lead article by a Swedish politician who was pushing to have it mandatory to take away the children from Christians. Why they pick out Christians, I don't know. But to take away the children from Christians who refuse to send their children to government schools and she didn't want any Christian education. She wanted private schools. She wants a uniform curriculum that everybody is enculturated in. Now, why is she so fearful of the tiny... It's a far tinier minority in Sweden. Her reasoning was that Christianity would undermine their idea of the perfect state. So even though Christians are a tiny minority, they are a threat. They are felt to be a threat. I read another article, the India Times thinks that Christianity is a threat to all the peoples of India. Uh, the article I read this past week said that Christianity is going to take over and change everything. And in case the readers thought this is hyperbole, they said, look at what Christianity has done. And it listed off a big long list about this long in the, in the paper of tribes in Africa that uh, Christianity has destroyed. Now, we would say that Christianity has converted and healed and brought incredible blessing to, but they said, no, Christianity has destroyed. And the, in effect, what they were saying is warning, this is what is going to happen to India if we don't get rid of all Christians from this nation. Okay? So it's a fear that they have of a tiny minority in India, and they cannot compete in a free market. So what do they do? They use force to try to get rid of Christians. They fear that minority. And we look at ourselves and we say, really? Uh, I mean, you've got to be kidding. But there is something to fear. It is the power of God unto salvation that transforms entire societies, and Satan knows it. We've seen this over and over again of the past 2,000 years, that Christianity has the power to bless, transform, and completely change the landscape of entire nations. And it is time that Christians begin to realize that when we once again embrace a vibrant Christianity by faith, God will send his fear before us, and there will be a good reason uh, for them to fear 
that God has ordained the victory. That's encouraging to me. The next phrase gives the second reason why all humanism is self-defeating. It says, I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. There are various ways that this confusion can come. Uh, Previously, I had just pointed out that the original way God sent confusion at the Tower of Babel was through language differences. And God continues to frustrate the United Nations' attempts to bring a one-world government because of all of the language barriers and all of the different national barriers. I mean, if the United Nations can't even handle little countries like Iran and Israel, come on, are they going to be able to stop the Great Commission? No way. They cannot do that. Every time they get together, God sends confusion. It's an amazing thing. Now, with some of the speakers this past week, you would get the impression that this neo-paganism is a united force to be contended with. And it's true. They are united in casting off the bonds of Christ, but that's about the only thing that they are united on. Uh, When the facts come up against them, there is incredible confusion on how to handle these embarrassing facts. You see it in the global warming movement. Over and over again, it's like they're scrambling to try to cover their their tracks. You see it in politics, where the agenda of one politician gets in the way of another uh, politician, or where they can't figure out how to get out of the mess that they've created with their past bad decisions. How many times have we seen this? Or it can simply be the confusion of their world and life view. The amazing contradictions in these various oneist philosophies Yeah, they can be temporarily overlooked because what they're trying to do is get rid of the present order, and they hope that they'll be able to all coalesce and and get together okay, but they're throwing off the last vestiges of Christianity. But you can count on non-Christian thought to have major problems at one point or another simply because of this fact. The further away from the God of truth that you wander, the more your system is going to not look true. Uh, the, the fuller it'll be filled with logical fallacies, the more irreconcilable problems will crop up. God can send confusion, and he has. The last phrase in this verse says, and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Humanism is self-defeating in terms of its inability to stand up to a vibrant Christianity. Now, can they stand up to a wimped-out Christianity that's so pervasive in America? Obviously, they can. They've been doing it. Uh, they, in fact, it's the church itself that has embraced so much of the neo-paganism uh, of the day. We have laid down the spiritual weapons that God has given to us, and we've begun using the weapons of the world. And so, to me, it's no wonder that the church in America is losing. I mean, you would expect it to lose. Let me give you an encouraging word picture that I got from Peter Hammond. Do you remember how the Hutus uh, in the past were demonizing the the, the gun ownership uh, concept? They're doing exactly the same thing through the media that the liberals are doing here in America. They managed to get gun laws passed that confiscated all of the weapons and Rwanda, and as soon as the United Nations and their soldiers had rounded up the last of the weapons from the Tutsis, guess what happened? The Hutus started a rampage, and there was a massacre of the Tutsis. Uh, And what the United Nations did is just, just passively stood by, did nothing. 
I hate that organization. It's just a wicked, demonic organization. In fact, the Belgian contingent of the United Nations were so disillusioned with the United Nations. They were so disgusted because they'd already warned uh, the head people in the United Nations, we have intercepted material that makes it crystal clear there's going to be a massacre if we don't step in. They told them to stand down. Don't say anything about it. Uh, Terrible organization. But... um, we can expect that when you lay down your weapons, those who hate you are free to attack you, aren't they? Totally free to attack you. Uh, we have thousands of years of history that can document that fact. But here is the wor- where the word picture gets to the point. Peter Hammond said that when the Tutsis managed to find a few old rifles and started firing back, the Hutus fled despite the fact that the Hutus had rocket launchers, grenade launchers, all kinds of weapons. And I thought, wow, wow that's a cool spiritual illustration. Um, the government schools, psychology, media, other humanistic experts have managed to get Christians to lay down their spiritual weapons. Okay? The Christians have laid down the incredible weapon of the Old Testament law of God and gotten the church to say, oh, no, 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 we're not going to use the Old Testament law. Uh, that, 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 that's outdated. That's not something for the present. Uh, they have laid down the spiritually nuclear weapons of the imprecatory Psalms. They say that's not loving. They have laid down the five solos of the Reformation. They have laid down their spiritual weapons and what has happened Exactly what you would expect the Hutus have taken over. The spiritual Hutus have taken over, right? And the church is in deep, deep uh, trouble right now. Uh, They're going after everyone in America. This is public official policies. They're going after everyone who holds to the old American values and they want to drive us into the closet. Well, sorry, it ain't going to happen with me. And the point is that we... If we would once again pick up the whole Word of God, pick up the five solos, pick up the imprecatory psalms, begin applying the marvelous gospel of Jesus Christ to all of life, including politics, including uh, business, and yes, it does apply to all of life. Uh, If we would uh, once again pick up our spiritual weapons against the demonic, we would see the same results that every single age of faithful Christians has seen in country after country around the world. We would see success. Why was the Corinthian church struggling? Because it was using carnal weapons just like the modern church is using. And Paul pled with them. Paul said, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And in that passage, he says, I plead with you. He pleads with them to pick up their spiritual weapons and start using them. He says, we don't need psychology. We need the Word of God. He told them that you think that you learn to uh, imitate me in, in not going or thinking beyond what is written. He said, stick to the Word of God. Uh, we don't need the, the government to force Christianity upon other people. We don't believe in forcing Christianity. It's God who changes people's hearts. That's why we believe in presenting the truth and we leave it up to God to make those changes. In fact, we don't even believe in a big government. Uh, true Christianity holds to an almost libertarian, very small form uh, 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 of government, and we believe that um, we should pretend, uh, present the truth 
and the free competition of ideas. And when the church has stood true to the word, country after country has fallen to the gospel. Now, if you don't believe that this verse can apply into the New Testament, I really challenge you to read. It's a fun read, actually. It's one of the few fun reads I recommend. Uh, but it's a fun read. It's Third Time Around by George Grant. And if you don't want to buy it, I can send you a free copy, okay? Um, it's an, e- e- an e-book uh, copy. But that book uh, is just a marvelous treatise filled with story after story of how tiny minorities, sometimes individuals, have completely done away with pro-abortion laws and all kinds of other humanistic laws and have turned nations upside down. Rome was no match for Christianity, and one by one the various regions of the known world gave up the fight and they announced that they were Christian nations. It can happen again. When you look at history, you will see that it is only when the church lacks faith, has a grasshopper theology, puts down its spiritual weapons, and refuses the discomfort of fighting that humanism can stand strong. Now, we're going to have to move more quickly on some of these points, but um, they're all very important points. The second discouraging observation that the spies gave to Israel was that everything was against them, that even nature was against them. They believed in the inverse of Romans 8, 28. They believed in Murphy's Laws. They said the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. They were acting like scientists, going out there and saying, wow, look at all these disasters, look at all these problems that are happening to people. Instead of looking at it as theologians, they, they were seeing how the land was devouring the Canaanites, and they're saying, boy, we don't know that we want to even be in this land. This doesn't look like a pleasant land uh, to, to be inheriting. But I want to read their statement once again, and I want you to notice how it should have been encouraging to them. Let me read it. The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. Who were the inhabitants? They were Canaanites. God's providence was causing the land to devour the inhabitants. How cool is that? I mean, this is great. Uh, And so if they had looked at the same facts through biblical world eyes, they would have gotten very, very encouraged. But instead, they misinterpreted God's providence in nature. Okay, so look at Exodus 23 and verse 28. God says that His providence in nature itself is arrayed against humanism. And this is so encouraging. It's not that everything's against Israel. Everything is ganging up against humanism is what God is saying. In verse 28, He says, And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. Hornets. The very hornets that the spies were nervous of are the hornets that God was using to advance his kingdom purposes. What did Squanto find when he came back to his tribe? He came back to his tribe, which was an incredibly fierce tribe, to find it decimated. Well, there wasn't anybody left. They'd all been killed off by some as yet undocumented uh, uh, plague. Squanto's survival and the tribe's decimation was not man's doing, it was God's doing, and it guaranteed the success of the early settlers who probably would have been wiped out by those, by those Indians. There are literally thousands of stories of God's enemies being dealt with by nature while sparing God's kingdom. For example, Rushdoony has given a historical analysis 
of when and where earthquakes, plagues, diseases, weather patterns, and other disasters have struck. Now, I call this God's providence against humanism because it focuses on the way in which God's natural laws are not natural laws at all, okay? They are divine laws that are used by God for His purposes. Meditate deeply sometime on Deuteronomy 28, and you will see that diseases, earthquakes, weather patterns, plagues, economic laws, mildew, boils, many other things that we would say just followed natural laws are actually used by God to keep humanism in, in check. Now, I, I have run across a number of Christians who just say they can't believe Deuteronomy 28 applies today. It, it, they're just very skeptical of that. I am not. I believe it definitely continues to apply. Now, we need to keep this point in balance with point four, God's perfect timing. doesn't happen when we necessarily would think it would or hope that it would. And Christians can suffer right along with the pagans sometimes. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of historical distance before we can see God's hand working in these disasters around us. But there could be no question about the fact that providence fights against humanism. I don't think I need to explain how God's laws of nature guarantee that um, uh, homosexuals uh, are not going to live as long as others on average. Uh, They're killing each other off by their lifestyle. I don't need to explain why our promiscuous culture has such a high rate of infertility. In fact, this past Monday, I read a fascinating article uh, that was saying that the government, for the first time, is getting very worried about uh, America's birth rate. For the first time, it has plunged below uh, the replacement level. There is increasing sterility with increasing VD. And by the way, this is true all across Europe as well. Uh, I don't need to explain why economic policies of self-absorbed cultures eventually benefit only those who follow biblical laws. You know, the spending going on in D.C. is not going to be able to escape God's laws of economics any more than a man jumping off of a 10-story building is going to be able to escape God's laws of gravity and His other laws uh, of, of, of physics. The further from God's blueprints that humanists go, the more God's laws of nature will fight against them and frustrate them, and that should be encouraging. Now, does that mean that we abandon people when they're afflicted by AIDS? And I say, no, of course not. Does it mean that we do not have compassion upon those hit by earthquakes? No. The Black Plague was a judgment by God, but Christians were at the forefront of ministering to those thus afflicted, sharing the love and the grace of of, of God. And hundreds of thousands came to Christ through such ministry. And down through history, disasters have torn gaping holes in Satan's kingdom, and the Christians have been right there on the forefront uh, to minister uh, uh, to them uh, in those situations. And so... Uh, Do not panic when you see God's judgments coming on America. Do not be afraid of God's judgments. Be ready to minister. We can be thankful that these are opportunities to minister and that God's providence conspires together with His grace to advance the Great Commission. Now, the third discouraging observation given by the spies was that God had allowed the pagans to totally dominate the culture. In Numbers 13... They complained that the land was dominated by Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, and Canaanites. And God's answer was shocking to them, that they ought to be thankful 
that the Canaanites were there. They should be thankful for that because these unbelievers served a very important purpose in God's, uh, God's kingdom, and they're thinking, huh, uh, I thought you told us that we needed to conquer them. But I want you to take a look at verse 29. It says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest, and I want to emphasize that word lest, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. He was saying, it's a good thing that those Canaanites were in the land, Okay. Yes, they were evil, but if it hadn't been for their houses, technology, irrigation systems, vineyards, pasture lands, systematic dealing with pests and other advances, it would have been a much tougher job for Israel to take dominion of that land. Now, it's very easy to skip over that verse, move on to driving them out, but it's much better to inherit a well-cultivated land than a land teeming with man-eating beasts and overgrown with weeds and brush. I've run across quite a few Christians that want to roll the clock back. They want to go 400 years back like the pilgrims and the Puritans and live off the land. Not me. (laughs) I like my iPad, okay? Uh, (laughs) um, I I like uh, air conditioning, and I I like the, the, the sewer systems and the other conveniences that are all around us. And I like Juliana's speech at PHF on how Steve Jobs was an unwitting missionary of God. Now, in the past, I've talked about how God used Roman roads and universal language coinage, universal court system, uh, their, their, their incredible navy that kept pirates at bay. There's so many things that, that God used uh, back then. And to me, it, it's just a, a no-brainer. It ought to be encouraging to us. Now, people get discouraged. They're always tending to look at the negative. They look at the internet and they say, man, we need to get the government to shut things down because look at all the pornography. Look at how the criminals are using uh, the internet. But let me tell you something. This is the last bastion of free market that we have out there, at least the free market of ideas. And Christians have been using the Internet sometimes the only way that you can get into a country uh, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, anyway, let's just not be Luddites who destroy technology. Now, some people call God's help of the Canaanites common grace. And Gary and I were talking about this on Thursday or Friday. It's probably better to use a different term than common grace. Uh, Use the term Christ-centered providence and the reason for it is because it's really been abused. Uh, the, the so-called common grace movement has um, made all kinds of compromises. They say, oh, it's God's common grace. Let's embrace evolution. It's a common grace. Let's embrace uh, psychology and uh, other humanistic wisdom. Now, that's an absolute misuse of the concept. Technically, the Bible says that grace is for the elect alone, But God does cause his good providences, his rain falling on the elect and the non-elect, he causes his good providences to everyone to work together for the good of his elect and the glory of his kingdom. And we don't have time to delve into the controversy between the Protestant Reformed Church and the Christian Reformed Church on is there common grace, is there not common grace. I tend to side with the Protestant Reformed Church, okay? Say there is no such thing as common grace Uh, there's a seed of truth though there's a seed of truth and and because the PRC is so amillennial they fail to see the seed of truth that God is at work in everybody's lives he brings goodness in everybody's lives it's an overflow from his kingdom uh, for the sake of uh, of his elect but we won't we won't get into that I just encourage you let's use different term than common grace let's talk about Christ-centered providence okay the fourth discouraging observation of the spies 
was that dominion was just too much work and would take way too long. And you'll find Christians today who are discouraged by how long it is taking and consequently they adopt short-term thinking, short-term economics, short-term investments, short-term political strategies, and they basically make a mess of many things. God wants us to strategize for the long haul, and the next verse in our passage, verse 30, indicates that gradualism is actually on our side. We do not need to get impatient. We can be thankful to God for His perfect timetable. Verse 30 says, <clears throat> little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. In other words, when you're ready. And until that time, it's little by little. Now, Christians are always looking for an easy solution. We want instant sanctification. Sorry, it isn't going to happen. Okay? There are all kinds of books out there that promise you uh, this kind of instant sanctification, various perfectionist movements out there. If you follow these seven secret steps to victory, you know, uh, you'll be able to live above known sin. Now, as much as people promise you, you can, you can come to a, a stage of some kind of perfection. It isn't going to happen. God wants us to fight throughout our lives to grow gradually. Now, there are many other applications. Christians today are so present-oriented that they become snared in get-rich-quick schemes. They get on the bandwagon of horrible political candidates. They want instant knowledge, instant conquest, instant kingdom, and God rarely works that way. Now, there are times where there's sudden shifts, but it's usually because there has been a boatload of work and investment on the part of a Christian uh, minority, a faithful remnant. God has chosen to use the gradual progress method little by little. Now, we call this compounded growth over time when we apply it to economics, right? <clears throat> and the more you invest and the longer you invest, the faster that growth uh, happens. That's compounded growth over time. But until you give up the hope of getting rich overnight, you're probably not going to save and invest the way that you really should. Until you give up the hope that a great president will turn America around. This is our answer to Republican president. He's going to turn the nation around. You're probably not going to invest long term in the way that you should to be able to take our nation back. Now, I'm thankful there's a minority of people across the states that are taking Joel McDermott's book seriously, and they're taking America back one county at a time. They're forgetting about this, this national nonsense that people are engaged in. The incrementalism of modern evangelicalism is not the little-by-little little progress that we're talking about here. No, it's engaging in compromises in the hopes that this gamble will pay off and we can hit it big, you know, on the national level. It's the exact opposite of what, of what God is talking about here. Until you give up the hope that the pastor can say something to your marriage that's going to whew, just solve our problems, you're probably not going to spend the hard work that the little-by-little little investment in your family uh, it requires for you to have a strong, strong marriage. Um, until you give up the hope that a diet plan will magically evaporate the fat, you know, and make you beautiful... You won't have what it takes to engage in the self-discipline needed to enjoy life without being ruled by life. I mean, you could go on and on. This is a principle you just need to grab hold of. It applies to all of life. 
God's principle for long-term success is one of the laws of harvest, compounded growth over time. Now, the fifth discouraging observation of the spies can be given negatively or positively. And before we look at God's answer in verse 31, I want to quote uh, the observation that was made by the children of Joseph. But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both those who are of Beth Shean and its towns and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. Now let me interpret that for you. God had given them a very specific boundary, and they didn't like that boundary. They said the people uh, in the valleys were too tough for them, so they weren't interested in taking the conquest of the valleys. But they didn't like the mountains uh, either. It just was too small for them. And so uh, lack of faith made them not enter into certain boundaries. Lack of contentment made them want to abandon other parts of their boundaries. And verse 31 of our passage gives God's principle. And I will, I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. What did those boundaries mean for Israel? Well, it meant, first of all, that God was setting limits on what they could do. Limits are a good thing. Deuteronomy 2 through 3, he says, I'm not giving you these other nations. These are your boundaries. Uh, for example, he said, when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession. So the boundaries were limiting what dominion they could take, and even Adam and Eve had to have boundaries to show that they were creatures and not God, and that was the temptation, wasn't it, uh, for Adam, that he could be as God. God gave limitations. He said, you can eat from any tree that you want to, but you may not eat this is a no-no, you may not eat of this tree. It was a boundary that he set. And the creator-creature distinction mandates boundaries. When we break God's laws, we're breaking boundaries. Pagan one is, and wow, in this conference, we're seeing they're seeking to destroy all of the boundaries that God has set, the sexual boundaries, for example. Uh, the G uh, uh, GLBT uh, movement, uh, you know, they're not even interested in, in that. They want to go complete erasing of even all of these. Boy, there's a myriad of distinctions. I can't even think of them all. But they're wanting to erase all of that into androgyny. They want every a radical unity. Socialism does the same thing, radical unity. Government schools does the same thing. They want a radical unity. And they're taking away the boundaries that God has established. And the church is powerless against the pagan fight against boundaries because the church itself has rejected God's boundaries. How in the world are we going to make them jealous of the gospel if we're not being transformed by the gospel? How can we make them jealous of the law of God when we're refusing uh, as a 21st century church to implement God's law? The Bible says that it is when the Christian nations begin applying all of God's biblical blueprints that God has promised to bless those nations so richly that other nations will become jealous and desire God's law. I look around, you know, at the, the nations of the world, and I think we're a long ways off from Israel becoming jealous of the incredible blessing and prosperity of the Gentile nations because they're following God's law. This is what we should be working for, and eventually Israel itself will succumb to the gospel, and there will be even greater blessing elsewhere. 
Well, this brings up the second purpose for those boundaries, and that is protection. God had only given Israel sufficient grace to conquer, maintain, and defend a certain territory. How many people can't do anything well because they're trying to do everything? Your calling is a boundary, but it's a boundary designed to protect you. It keeps you from taking on a bazillion tasks outside of your calling. One of the expressions that came from the title of a book is uh, pushing the margins. And so the margins are the white, page, uh, white uh, space that are on everybody's pages except for mine. Uh, it's the white spaces there. And uh, he said, too many people crowd out the white space. They're filling so much content into their lives that if God providentially brings even one little catastrophe into their lives, they're just blown away because they can't take anything more into their lives. Why? Because they've been pushing their boundaries. They cut into their sleep. What are you doing when you cut into your sleep every day, every day, every day? You're removing the creaturely boundaries that God has placed upon us and you begin to feel miserable. You don't feel good. God gave you all kinds of boundaries. He forced the Israelites to take vacation. Can you imagine that? Uh, now, it used to be I had to be forced to take vacation because I was such a workaholic, but I, I delight in it now. But he forced them to take vacation. Why? He gave that kind of a boundary to protect them and their health. And there's many areas uh, where you could apply this. Okay, the third, and I think primary, uh, purpose for these boundaries was as a challenge. It was a challenge for all of these tribes to occupy all of their boundaries. In Numbers 32, some of them were thinking, huh, we're not so sure uh, we want to take all of those boundaries. And uh, there was the temptation to take less, and God says, no way, I will be displeased with you if you do not strive for these boundaries. Now, every time a new difficulty would come along from the Canaanites, Israel was tempted to settle for less territory than God had called them to take. And I see the church doing the same thing today. And so we need this challenge as well. What are the boundaries God has given in the Great Commission? Well, I can tell you they're a lot broader and bigger than the church is entering into. There's very few mission organizations that are willing to engage in nation discipling. And that's what we specialize in, is supporting mission organizations that are willing to do that because there's so few supporters for, their, for them. Uh, so many Christians today don't believe in the wide-ranging boundaries that God has called us to, and as a result, they're willing to let the Canaanites, the Jebusites, all the otherites to call the shots. What does Jesus want? That not one square inch of planet Earth is exempted from eventually being put under the feet of King Jesus. Now that's a huge challenge, isn't it? And so boundaries keep us from taking on less than we should. They challenge our faith. Now, the sixth discouraging observation of the early Israelites was that success is impossible unless we make peace with the Canaanites. And the Israelites were constantly trying to make alliances and covenants in order to survive, and God says, no. <clears throat> now, this is not a contradiction of principle three. Principle three says God uses the technologies of the humanists and the wealth of the humanist to advance his cause, but we're never to compromise with the humanistic worldview or values. Verse 32 says, You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. Now, we don't have time to get into this uh, point in detail, but I will recommend a book, and I know some of you have been 
slogging or attempting to slog through this book over the last couple of years and you give up after a while, it is, it is kind of hard reading. So if you're not a reader, I'll exempt you from this one, okay? It's, uh, but it is a great book. It's an absolutely amazing book. It's uh, Herbert Schlossberg's book, Idols for Destruction. The, the, the picture is in your outline there. And what he does is he shows the six main idols that have captured 